Welcome back to another edition of On the Record, the Daily Iowans Weekly News Podcast, where we break down the paper's top headlines from the week. I'm your host and co-producer, Eleanor Hildebrandt, and I'm here with our co-producer, Haley Marks. On today's episode, we have three special guests. We will be chatting with Daily Iowan News reporter Brady Osborne and arts editor Josie Fischels. We will also catch up with Sarah Watson, the executive editor of the DI, and discuss where the University of Iowa's presidential search is at and where it goes from here. Whether you're in the car, at home, or in the classroom, we'd like to welcome you to this Friday, April 16th edition of On the Record. I'm Haley Marks, On the Record's co-producer, and here are this week's headlines. On Wednesday, the Daily Island reported on eight new cases of COVID-19 on the University of Iowa's campus. As of April 14th, four additional students and four employees self-reported cases of COVID-19 since Monday, April 12th. As of Wednesday, there have been more than 3,600 positive coronavirus cases since the 2020-2021 academic year began. On Monday's print edition, the DI covered the University of Iowa's Afro-American Culture Center breaking ground on its student-led community garden. Students behind the project hope it will provide a safe space for our underrepresented students to connect with each other in nature. The garden has various plants and vegetables to be planted and harvested throughout the summer and fall seasons. University of Iowa administrators are exploring plans to establish a new student well-being center. The project would allow for the construction of a new student well-being center to rehouse and consolidate the services currently offered at West Long Hall, if approved. On Tuesday, the Daily Iron reported that 975 students in the Iowa City Community School District are in quarantine, nearly two months after the district offered students the option to return to entirely on-site learning. The school district ditched its hybrid model in January after Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds required all K-12 schools to offer a fully in-person learning option. Republican Senator Johnny Ernst will introduce a bill in the U.S. Senate that would prohibit government agencies from enacting policies to ban meat consumption by employees, referring to the Meatless Mondays initiative promoted by the U.S. Department of Agriculture nine years ago under the former President Barack Obama. Three weeks after it was suspended by the City Council, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission will resume meetings with newly composed members this week. The Council appointed two new members to the group this week. Following questions from students, the University of Iowa Strategic Planning Strategy Team is adding ex-officio members to its structure to allow for more student voices in creating the university's roadmap for the next five years. When the team's makeup was initially announced in February, students were not listed. Early this week, a bill that proposes zero increased funding and a tuition freeze for Iowa's three Regents universities was approved by the State House Appropriations Committee on a party-line vote. The bill would increase funding compared to fiscal year 2021 for programs and grants in the Department of Education and the State Board of Regents Iowa School for the Deaf and the Iowa Braille and Sight Saving School, but it would not increase funding for the University of Iowa, Iowa State University, or the University of Northern Iowa. The DI also covered the State Board of Regents meeting on Wednesday, where Regents President Mike Richards announced that COVID-19 vaccinations will not be required for students or employees of Iowa's Regents institutions. He said vaccines will be strongly encouraged, but not required this fall. During a presentation to the Regents, the University of Iowa's hospitals and clinics reported that UI Healthcare would have set all-time records for patient volumes in the hospital if it weren't for a mandatory two-month shutdown because of COVID-19 in 2020. 
UIHC representatives told the regents that expenses at UIHC this year are higher than what was expected for fiscal year 2021 and are growing faster than the hospital's revenue. Several inconsistencies in CAN bus operations were reported during the State Board of Regents Audit and Compliance Committee meeting on Wednesday. From areas of non-compliance with the Federal Transit Authority regulations when it came to drug and alcohol testing, to inconsistencies found in processes of tracking vehicle titles and ensuring the proper number of vehicles, the audit showed various areas that can be adjusted to improve CAN bus services. After researching a historical site in Iowa for three decades, a burial site that was believed to be lost because of the flattening of land was rediscovered recently. Through a geophysical survey of the land beneath the surface, anomalies were detected that could not be seen by researchers, which gives Iowans a better understanding of who was here before them. And on Thursday, the DI reported on the Iowa City Parks and Recreation Department recently conducting prescribed fires at three Iowa City parks in an effort to protect the prairies that were there from invasive species, as well as to prepare the land for new plots of prairie. These burns will promote biodiversity. You can read all these stories and more in the Daily Iowans print editions on Mondays and Wednesdays or online anytime at dailyiowan.com. Brady Osborne, a news reporter for the DI who covers student government, wrote a story this week about the University of Iowa beginning to vaccinate its students following the expansion of eligibility requirements in the first week of April. Welcome to the studio, Brady. We're delighted to have you on for the first time today. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. Um, our instructional break was today, so that was nice to just kind of relax, you know, but yeah, I'm doing good. Yeah, definitely a nice day off. And in your story this week, you wrote about students getting vaccinated through the University of Iowa. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what this process looks like and how the university is vaccinating its students? Yeah, so um, the university is receiving um, Johnson Johnson vaccines for the students. Um, they're being allocated by the federal government. And so the first week was last week. Um, on April Friday, April 2nd, the university sent out a COVID update and um, in the COVID update, they had this thing called an interest survey. So students could take it to designate that they were interested in the vaccine. And so um, if the student designated that they were interested, they would get put on a list of um, people. And then the university would kind of just go down the list and send out. Um, and then once like their name was called or their name, it came to their name, they uh, were able to sign up for a vaccine. Um, they just picked a time that was um, that worked out for them, and then they could go to student health and get vaccinated. So, yeah. And I know your story came out this Monday, but how many students have signed up for these appointments so far? Yeah, so the last number that I heard was from last Thursday, so April 8th, I believe, and over 6,000 students had signed up um, to say that they were interested, and so I'm assuming that that number is way higher now, but yeah, there's a really good level of interest from the student body. Yeah, and obviously the University of Iowa is not the only place that's looking to expand vaccinations quickly right now. How are Johnson County and other Regents institutions in Iowa expanding their programs to accommodate more vaccinations? Yeah, so I know that the Regents and other Regents institutions being Iowa State and UNI both got allocations of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine for their students as well. Iowa State got the same amount as us and UNI just got a little bit less, but um their processes are very similar to ours. Um, they're just trying to vaccinate as many people as possible. And I'm not super well versed on like Johnson County's um, 
efforts, but I do know that they are just trying as hard as they can to uh, promote the vaccine, get the word out, and just get as many people vaccinated as possible so we can kind of start getting back to normal or whatever normal is going to look like after this. So, And you actually spoke to a few students for this story. What did they have to say about the process of getting the vaccine and what that looks like for them? Yeah, so um, everyone I spoke to said that the process was super easy once they got um, their notification that they were eligible to get the vaccine. All they had to do was just sign up for a time um, that works for them, and then they could go into student health and get their vaccine. They said once they got to student health, it was like super, super streamlined. Um, They didn't have to wait very long for anything. There was always people telling them like where to go, what to do. Um, And I I went to student health actually and interviewed them. And I can say from personal experience that everyone there is just super helpful and kind. And so, yeah, the process, um, it was kind of a consensus that the process was super easy. And um, I talked a little bit to them just about getting the Johnson & Johnson versus like the other um, variants of the vaccine. And they all kind of just said that they trusted the science. Um, They didn't really care which one they got as long as they got one. And so, yeah, it just sounded like it was a super easy process for everyone. Well, that's very good to hear. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast this week, Brady. We can't wait to read more of your reporting in the DI in coming weeks. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. On April 13th, the University of Iowa announced it would be pausing all Johnson & Johnson vaccinations for students and staff until further notice, following reports of a severe blood clot syndrome appearing in six individuals who had taken the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in the United States. The CDC and FDA also issued a statement recommending the pausing of vaccinations until research and data could be analyzed. In an email update on Wednesday, the University of Iowa told campus that it would continue vaccinating its students, faculty, and staff with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines as supply allows following the cancellation of Johnson & Johnson vaccination appointments. Arts editor Josie Fishels wrote an article about Amanda Thomas, who will serve as the Hawkeye Marching Band's drum major next fall. She is one of just a handful of women who have led the band in its 140-year history. Welcome, Josie. We're excited to have you on this edition of the podcast. How's everything going? Um, it's pretty good. I'm excited to be back. Good. We're excited to have you. And this week you wrote about UI senior Amanda Thomas, who will be leaving the Hawkeye Marching Band next year. Can you tell us a little bit about Amanda and her history with the band? Yeah, so Amanda's been involved with the band all four years. Um, She's currently a senior. Uh, Next year she'll be a fifth year um, studying music education and horn performance. I was told specifically, like, some people get upset if you specify the horn. So I will just call it horn performance. And Amanda was previously the Mellophone section leader um, for the past two seasons. Um, So she's had quite a bit of leadership in the band um, and has always wanted um, to become drum major as as many um, people within the band do. It's it's the highest rank an undergrad member of the band can hold. Um, So obviously very desired. Yeah, and obviously this is Thomas's fourth year. She's been here for a little while. So what else has she done with her time at the University of Iowa? Yeah, um, Amanda is also um, a safety supervisor at Canvas, so she balances her commitments to the band um, with that and also studies, obviously. Um, within the band, um, this year with COVID and all of that, she's been she's worked to organize a lot of like social events with the band to keep everyone together. Um, they did have um, in-person rehearsals this year um, during 
their season, but it was highly divided. They had four separate bands, the I band, the O band, the W band, and the A band, which I thought was very cute. Um, but something that was noted uh, by the band director, Eric Bush, during our discussion is that even though it was so divided, Amanda like really um, worked to get to know the freshmen, to um, help people bond, um, because a lot of that was lost this year. Um, and you can just tell when, when speaking to her that community within the band is, is so, so important to her. And for this story, you actually did some research on the women who have led the band that's known as the Boom in Kinnick. And when were women initially allowed to be in the HMB? And who has come before Thomas to lead the band? Yeah, so um, as the headline or summary of the story suggests, there's been really a handful of women um, in its very long history, um, dating back all the way to the 1880s. Um, so Amanda is the second woman in modern history to lead the band. Um, there have definitely been women beforehand. I, I want to say only three um, previous to Annalisa um, Ioli, who was the first woman in modern history to lead the band in 2017. Um, and those two um, women who uh, led the band initially in World War II, um, which as we all know, is like, like women were starting to dominate more um, male driven fields at that time, just because a lot of men went to war and they were like, oh my gosh, we're gonna take over these positions, women. Um, so yeah, they had two um, drum majorettes is what they were called at the time. Um, their names were Rose Day and Mary DeMont. Um, so they were the two drum majorettes at the time. Um, and yeah, they were the first, um, at least in documented history. Um, the website of the Hockey Marching Band has a very long list dating every single drum major that's held the position as far as they can recall. Um, yeah, so it's definitely been a long road. So World War II um, came and went. After that, like men started to refill those positions. Um, and then it was a long time. It wasn't until um, Title IX that women were allowed permanently um, to be in the Hawkeye Marching Band. So yeah, it's, it's just been a while. Um, bands have like history in militaries. So that's why they just tend to be more male dominated, um, at least in the past. Um, but now, um, even after Title IX, it took like quite a few years until Annalise's leadership to get women, not just in the band, but in leadership positions. Um, there's plenty of leadership um, in the band beyond um, drum major. There's like band manager, there's section leaders, and those are definitely like, they have women um, in them, but seeing someone in this role, especially to Amanda was just particularly important to her um, for inspiring um, young girls and the other leaders um, looking forward to seeing themselves represented in that role. Um, that was really important to her. Well, that is definitely quite the intricate and interesting history. And, you know, it's, it's time for there to be another woman drum major. And so what did the selection process look like for Thomas when it came to this position? And what did the band director, who you previously mentioned, Eric Bush, say about her and her leadership skills? Yeah, um, so the process, I'll start with that. It's insane, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Um, I The word I used in the article was rigorous. The word Amanda used was intense. Um, and intense, I, I feel like, well, 
accurate is an, an understatement um, for, for what um, she described to me. So the process begins many, many months before the actual um, audition. Uh, all applicants who are interested have to go through the process of submitting an application, which from what I heard is a feat in itself. Um, it's very in-depth. Um, it asks a lot of questions um, about leadership, about dedication to the band, about goals, um, really everything is encompassed. So just filling out that is an accomplishment. So Amanda first had to do that. Um, and then a one-on-one -on -one interview with um, Dr. Bush is had um, just to kind of scope out why they want this, um, what they see in themselves and what they see in the band for the next year. Um, and all of that culminates on audition day. And audition day is a six hour process. Um, could be a little longer depending on how many people are auditioning. Um, this time they had six people. Um, so it was actually a little, a little shorter. Um, but that starts, that whole process uh, has like several parts to it, I guess I would say. They start with run on, which is when the drum major uh, runs onto the field. They do the high step, um, they do the toss of the mace, and they do the salute. And then they do the back bend, which if anyone's seen the drum major do this, they literally bend all the way backwards so that their head like touches the, the turf, which is so cool. <laughs> and Amanda's able to do that. Um, so they have um, several goes at that whole process. Um, and then they move into teaching the band, um, which is one of the drum major's responsibilities is to teach fundamentals um, to new members and also to review fundamentals um, with the rest of the band once returners join during um, uh, marching band camp. But they have a teaching portion where each major takes a stab at teaching the rest of the band, uh, the rest of the drum majors, their uh, fundamentals. Um, and the judges are looking at not only how the fundamentals are taught, uh, but also how they're executed um, by the other drum majors. So there's that part. And, and Amanda made a point of saying like that was the part she really excelled at and felt most comfortable in. Um, she really loves that aspect of, of the drum major's role. There's, um, aside from that, there's a lot of like performance and stamina practices like going on. Um, basically, like the reason it's six hours and one of them is, is because like a drum major has to make it through an entire game with like very high energy. Um, and those could sometimes take a long time. Um, but they also have to do several mace spinning um, performances. One of them is when they've practiced and learned to their own music um, to present. And then another one is a completely improvised um, version of that to see how they, yeah, to see how they um, perform just on the fly because you don't like there's so many other um songs happening during that process that you really just have to be able to to whip out that mace um and start performing energetically no matter what song is played so that is a really cool process so yeah that is everything that has to do with the performance aspect of this um but as for what uh, Dr. Bush had to say about Amanda, he couldn't say enough good things about her leadership and um, really the dedication she has to not only to the band, but to individual members of the band. Um, he said that she really, really worked hard to get to know the freshmen, um, despite being several years um, older than them. Um, she took the time to get to know them, to make sure that they were feeling comfortable and welcome. Um, you could really tell that in the way that she spoke. Um, and he said that 
when she's in the position, she'll definitely be able to claim the respect of the band um, because of just how involved and dedicated she's been over these past four years. Good, that'll definitely be very exciting to see in the fall. And obviously this year, as you kind of mentioned earlier, has been different and looked a little bit odd because of COVID-19 with the four separate bands and everything. So what is Thomas looking forward to when the HMB moves back to Kinnick Stadium this fall as an entire band? Yeah, ideally um, the Hawkeye Marching Band is back. fully in person in the band um, in Kinnick, they're definitely looking forward to that and have their fingers crossed. Um, But one of the things that Amanda stressed both to me and um, in her interview was that she really sees the potential for this um, next generation of the band uh, to be the best there has been, um, which is quite a statement. Um, But she said that that's because this, um, not just the incoming freshmen for next year, but the current freshmen right now who haven't stepped foot in Kinnick, some of them, um, they know what it's like to go through a struggle. They know what it's like to have something that they're really dedicated and passionate about um, taken away from them. And she said that drive and ambition is just so going to show on the field. Um, People are going to enter knowing why they're there, um, doing what they love. And she said, that's really gonna show through. this next year or so she hopes. So that's really, yeah, quite a statement, but really cool to hear. Yeah, well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Josie, and sharing your story with us. Hopefully we can have you back again sometime this semester. Great, thank you so much for having me. Finally, we have Daily Iowan Executive Editor, Sarah Watson here to chat about the University of Iowa presidential search process that is set to end on April 30th. Welcome, Sarah. We're excited to have you on the podcast again this semester. How has your week been? Yeah, like you said, it's been pretty busy, but really exciting. It seems I was making a comment that it's really suspenseful because they only announce a candidate 24 hours in advance. And so that 20 in that, you know, half an hour when you know the candidate's name, you're quickly trying to find as much information as you can about the candidate. So it's really fun and exciting. And I think our whole staff is really dove headfirst into just another important story that comes out of 2020, 2021. So it's exciting. Definitely. It's been a little bit interesting to kind of just watch how everything's going. But as you mentioned, you're staying busy with the UI presidential search. So what has been going on with the search? Where are we in the process right now? And where do we go from here? Yeah. So today they just announced, well, Wednesday, they announced the second presidential candidate. um, And we had the first candidate on Monday. That was Hari Osofsky. She um, was a Penn State College of Law Dean. And so she was announced on Sunday, had her forum on Monday, and now um, we're into the second candidate. And then um, we will have the third and fourth candidates announced next week. And then on April 30th is when the Board of Regents will make their final decision. Yeah. And as you mentioned, we are at the point where the four finalists are coming to campus on different intervals in the next couple of days. Can you tell us a little bit about the individuals who have been announced so far and their backgrounds? For sure. So, so far two have been announced this week. Um, Hari Osofsky is the Penn State College of Law Dean. Um, She's been in that position for about four years and has had uh, several academic faculty positions in other universities. Um, So about two decades in um, higher education. She has a specialty in um, climate law and energy policy 
and uh, the legal realm. And she, in addition to her uh, position as the Penn State Law Dean, she's also the Dean of the International School there as well. So she has those two administrative positions um, at Penn State. So, um, and in her, in her um, forum on Monday, she really emphasized uh, personal integrity and collaboration and leadership, talking about listening sessions and bringing in all the stakeholders that she can to really uh, push forward the vision of the university, which um, in some of her, some of her state, she, she focused a lot on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so um, a couple of her answers, she cited some specific examples of ways that she's turned some of these listening sessions into real concrete solutions for students. Um, and so, so for example, um, making a, appointing an associate vice president for DEI in the law school and um, establishing some scholarships too for underrepresented students. So that is the first candidate. And then the second one, um, second candidate was just announced today, Wednesday. So we haven't had the forum yet, but um, her name is Barbara Wilson and she is the executive vice president for the University of Illinois system. Um, and she's also the vice president of academic affairs. So she has a very long history of academic experience um, and a very interesting background. So um, she served like as interim chancellor for the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, um, which is one of the University of Illinois uh, system universities um, before becoming executive vice president. And so uh, we'll be looking forward to also hearing about her expertise and her vision for campus tomorrow on Thursday. So more updates to come. Definitely more updates to come in this process. Yeah, when one thing I will just note that it's very interesting that the first two candidates, one, the first two candidates are women. I don't think anyone in the previous search was female. And then two, both of them have academic experience, um, which is something that students, faculty, and staff in feedback sessions to the search committee said that they, they really wanted. A, a president with academic experience. And our current president, Bruce Harold, um, while he's definitely come a long way in the, in the opinions of shared governance groups, um, started out on campus with a really contentious search process. No one, uh, I shouldn't say no one, but um, most shared governance groups were really hesitant to work with him or were hesitant of his, um, his appointment just being the least popular candidate and having no academic administrative experience and only business executive experience. Yeah, and you're right, the last search, they were all male candidates, all four finalists. Mm -hmm. um, some had academic background, some didn't. So it's clear that we're getting a different pool, which is something definitely to watch over the next oh, two weeks before we get a new president, which is very, very soon. But as you mentioned, these finalists are coming to campus. They're visiting the University of Iowa and its community members. What will the finalists be doing for their two days on campus? And what does that schedule look like? Yeah, so it's a busy schedule. It's like 8 a.m. until their 3.30 forum and beyond. So, um, so it's meeting with the shared governance groups, student uh, undergraduate student government, graduate professional student government, um, the faculty representatives, um, healthcare leadership, budget finance offices, um, the president's cabinet, the president's office staff, university athletics. So really like everyone you can think of who um, 
has a stake in the, in the University of Iowa presidency um, is probably represented on that schedule. Yeah, that's always good to have all the representation you can have in the in the two days we get to see these candidates. And as you've mentioned, we're recording this on Wednesday, the 14th. And this morning, the second of the two finalists was announced and she hasn't had her forum yet or anything. But when will we know about the rest of the candidates and what does the searches timeline look like moving forward from today? Right. Yes. So, yes, like you said, the candidate was announced at 8 a.m. today. She'll have her forum tomorrow. Um, that's Barbara Wilson. Um, so then from here, um, the next two finalists will be announced next week, 24 hours ahead of their their first day, first of two day campus visit. Um, and so what that just means is um, Sunday morning, 8 a.m., we'll find out the who the third finalist is. And then Wednesday morning, 8 a.m., we'll find out who the fourth finalist is. Um, and then they will have their forums at 3.30 p.m. Um, the day later. And so once they've, once all the candidates have visited campus, April 26 at 5 p.m. is the deadline for when campus can give feedback on these candidates. And, um, and then the search committee will meet, the Board of Regents will meet and um, do their final um, discussion interviews and select the final candidate, which will be announced on April 30th, which is a Friday. So, and then after that, once a candidate is selected, um, you know, they still have their institution to, you know, wrap up loose ends. And so um, there will be an interim president. Um, that's the dean of the current, current dean of the uh, graduate college, uh, John Keller. So um, he will be the interim president until the next president starts. So that could be in the late summer, early fall. And yeah. then our next president starts. Yeah, somewhere in there, there's lots of wiggle room, which is always nice to have for new candidates. And as you kind of mentioned, this process does have to do with finalists interacting with the university and the campus community, whether that's students, faculty, or staff. How can people become more involved or participate in these forums? Yeah, so um, at 8 a.m. on the day of the forum, you can go to the IMU and pick up a ticket. Um, they have they're, because of COVID-19, they're limiting the number of spots that um, are available in person at the forum. So um, there are eight tickets for undergraduate students, eight tickets for graduate professional students, eight tickets for faculty, eight tickets for staff, and eight tickets for community members. Um, so there's only 40 people in the room. And um, actually, there were three open seats at, the, at Monday's forum. So you know, you could probably go and get a ticket if you wanted to. Um, but otherwise you can watch the public forum on a live stream YouTube uh, that the Board of Regents posts online. Um, and you can submit campus feedback um, online. Like I said, you can um, submit that until April 26th at 5 p.m. Um, that's online also if you go to the University of Iowa presidential search page. Um, other than that, really the only like public public part, portion of the forum is um, that 3.30 forum at the, on the first day. Otherwise you have to be part of a, one of the leadership groups that would be meeting separately with the candidate. Uh, and that is like a closed, closed door meeting. So 
that's how you can get involved with the search process. Um, I think, yeah, the main way is to submit feedback uh, through the UI website, um, either questions or concerns or, you know, just general feedback for the search committee. Yeah, well, it'll definitely be interesting over the next 16 days, just seeing who the next candidates are and what kind of happens during their forums. But thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Sarah, and sharing a little bit about this process with us. Hopefully we can have you back again sometime soon. For sure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. Follow The Daily Iowa on social media and check our website for breaking news updates and the latest COVID-19 related news. We'll be back next week with another edition of On the Record.